it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather, and Dave Ahern, to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Welcome to the Investing for Beginners podcast. I am Andrew Sather. I have another great interview for you today. Dave's taking the day off again. Um, So today we have Tobias Carlisle. He has done a ton of stuff in the online space, the investing space, and made some great contributions to the value investing world as well. So with that, Tobias, I'd love to dig into all the stuff you got going on, but thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for the very kind introduction, Andrew. Appreciate it. Yeah. So I guess first things first, um, <laughs> I'm just going to like dive right in and then maybe we can go over your background a little bit later. Sure. Um, just the top of the thing that, that comes to my mind, because I was re-listening to your book, Acquirers Multiple, which is a fantastic book, by the way, for anybody. Basically, w- we've mentioned your that book several times on our show, but I think to Cliff Notes summary, it's like um, taking Joel Greenblatt's ideas and kind of adding an extra component to it and kind of having a ton of back testing research and a whole a whole lot more that I'm not giving it full justice for. But as I was listening to it, um, this huge thing that comes up as a theme over and over again is this idea of mean reversion. And I think it's a fantastic way to kind of start a discussion about some of the things when you talk about value investing. And it's something that I don't think is a term that gets presented to beginners a lot. So can you talk about uh, what mean reversion is and kind of how that applies to the stock market? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. So there's a, there's, uh, there are lots of different mean reversions. We're not necessarily talking about mathematics, law of large numbers. We're talking here in a very specific sense in relation to the stock market. And basically, if you're a value investor, your expectation is that the, there are there are companies that are undervalued, there are companies that are overvalued, and there are companies that are what we might call fairly valued. And the companies that are undervalued and overvalued will at some stage in the future go back to being fairly valued. And it's that path from being undervalued or overvalued to fairly valued that is mean reversion. So that's one example of it. It, it, it occurs 
not only in securities prices, in stock markets, in economics, in GDP, it, it's, it's everywhere, but it also occurs in the underlying businesses. So businesses have a cycle and sometimes they're doing very well, sometimes they're doing very badly, but given a long enough time period, it might be 10 years, might be seven years, they, they cycle between those two extremes. And all we're trying to do is find them when they're at, when we're buying them long, when we're trying to buy them undervalued. We want to find them at at a, 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 a poorly performing part of the cycle in a business sense. So they're, they're earning less than they would earn in the ordinary course. And they're also trading at a discount to what we think they're worth or what they what they might be worth even at that uh you know, business cycle nadir at the at the depths of that business cycle. And what we're hoping is that when we buy them, we'll see mean reversion in the business. So the business will start doing a little bit better and the business will look like a better business over the next five or 10 years. And then that will also cause a the discount in the the, the price to where we estimate that intrinsic value to close. So we're sort of relying on two things. We're relying on the business doing a little bit better, doing the way doing the way it as well as it has done in the past, and we're we're hoping that the valuation becomes a little more normal, and that's how we're trying to generate returns on the long side. Can we focus? Let's narrow down on the business side first. So, mean reversion happens with earnings too, and I think that's interesting. Why why does that tend to happen over longer periods? There's there's many reasons. The most the primary reason is competition. So when when times are very good, so, so take a business that has a commodity input like oil and gas or something like that. When times are good, there's a lot of capital that goes into the sector. Competitors come into it, uh, and there are lots of beneficiaries. So you might have a, a company that's a oil field services might look really good. Companies that build rigs might look really good. Companies that drill for oil look really good, and um, that's sort of that. that those are, those are the best case conditions for those businesses. So they look very profitable at that at that point. But there's a too many competitors enter. It becomes increasingly hard to sustain margins. It becomes increasingly hard to make money. And uh, at, say the oil price falls away, then there'll, there'll be uh, a lot of businesses that will go out of business. They'll lose a lot of money and they'll look really poor for a period of time. So if you if you think about the best time to buy one of those cyclical businesses, it won't be when the business looks really good and it's cheap because that's probably closer to the top of its business cycle. Likely the best time to buy that business is at the other end of the cycle when there's no capital in going into the industry. If anything, everybody's leaving. Um, they're not making very much money. And so their earnings and so on will be depressed. And so what a value investor who's prepared to invest in cyclical companies, not all value investors are, but if you are prepared to do that, you want to try to find the ones that have got a healthy balance sheet that look like they can survive through the down period, through the tough period, and emerge more profitable on the other side. So that's that's the main driver. It, it's Typically, it's in cyclicals, it's the commodity inputs, and then in all businesses, it's competition. Makes a lot of sense. And thank you for that breakdown. You mentioned, so, you know, you have, that's a big contributor to why value investing works. 
um, with the caveat that you want to make sure you're investing in strong businesses. You mentioned a strong balance sheet. Can you be more specific on that? How would you determine when looking at a balance sheet or, or a business as it stands in its competitive field and how, it, how it's kind of positioned in the market? What types of things you look for to kind of weed out the ones that are maybe have a better chance of mean reverting because uh, the industry is is just not as profitable at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's very simple. Cash on the balance sheet is the nerve tonic that gets to the root of all of your problems. If you have the cash, you have a long runway to resolve all the other problems. If you don't have the cash, or even if you do have the cash, the next best thing is free cash flow. Uh, so that's important. Positive free cash flow means that you can continue to survive. And so that's what we're looking for. At a very simple level, we're looking for cash on the balance sheet and free cash flow. Okay, cool. So how maybe that's a good segue to what you've got going on with um, the book you wrote, Acquirers Multiple, and you have a blog as well. Can you dive in and do a better job than I did at describing that book and kind of how these ideas of mean reversion and, and some of the other things really lead to finding, trying to look for undervalued stocks and buying those and trying to close that gap between where a company might trade in regards to its intrinsic value and then maybe capturing that difference? Well, if you if you believe in mean reversion, so that in the research, in the, in the value investing research, the academic research, they basically say there are different types of investors. There are some investors who are extrapolation investors. So what they do is they look at the trend in the earnings and then extrapolate that out as far as they possibly can, maybe discount back the, the, the each additional year of returns, and that's how they arrive at a valuation. The problem with that is that many businesses and most businesses, when I say most, I mean 96% of businesses statistically have this mean reversion feature or, or bug in their businesses. So if you're making that assumption for most businesses, it's going to turn out to be wrong and you're going to overestimate or underestimate their future valuation. So the way to do it is to assume mean reversion in the business in the future and to build that into your model. And it creates some unusual situations where you might be buying something that that looks weaker than uh, some investors might assess it to be. And on the other hand, you might also be selling something. So we, we short sell in the ETF you might be short selling something, selling something short that looks like it's fairly robust, but we think it's closer to the top of its business cycle, and that might be evidenced by the fact that it's losing money and uh, the balance sheet is weak. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, 
finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. You mentioned the ETF. Can you? Um, I, I'm familiar with it, what it is, but our audience isn't. Can you um, explain what what that is and, and how people? You know, what's the strategy behind the ETF? The ETF is a one thirty thirty long short deep value ETF focused on the mid cap uh, area of the stock market. So it's, that's the largest twenty five percent of companies by number. It equates to about the S and P fifteen hundred below that they become a little bit more illiquid and more difficult to trade in an ETF context, but that's a minimum market capitalization of about $2 billion. So what we're trying to do in that, on the long side, we look for companies that have strong balance sheets um, that are cheap on an operating income to enterprise value basis, or what I describe as the acquirer's multiple. They're generating free cash flow and they're using that free cash flow to buy back stock or to pay down debt and uh, I think that when those things are in, in concert, that's a lot of advantage for a company. So we know statistically that companies that buy back stock do about 2.5% on average per year better than the rest of the companies in the market. And we know that companies that sell stock do about 4% worse than other companies on the market. So we build in all of these advantages on the long side, and then we concentrate into the 30 best names and we roll them on a quarterly basis. We also have a short book, and the short book is not quite the reverse of the long book, even though the the idea is pretty similar. It's just that sometimes it's very hard to come up with a valuation for some of the companies that we look at, so it doesn't necessarily bother us that we can't value the company. And the reason it's difficult is there's no balance sheet value. They're carrying a lot of debt. They're losing money on, uh, on an accounting basis. They're, they're free cash flow negative and they're issuing stock or raising debt to stay alive. And that describes quite a few businesses out there right now. And so that's, surprisingly. That, yeah, 
more now at the top of the market than at the bottom of the market because the market the bottom of the market will clear a lot of them away but um that's not enough you know when, what i've described to you on the short side you can go and look and you'll see there are lots of businesses that are like that and they're up materially 30 percent you know 20 percent every single year because they do have some high growth rate and say the revenue line and there's some assumption that at some stage they'll grow to a scale where that revenue line will start generating you know that will turn into a bottom line that will be a good bottom line down the road and it's necessary to lose a lot of money at this stage so that you can beat out your competitors. So what we look for in addition to all of that, and this is not a very value investing thing to do, but this is more like a short selling thing to do. And I th- short selling, I think, is a little bit of a dark art, but we look at, we just make sure they've got no momentum. And I think what that tells us, that's just, we just look back 12 months to make sure that they're not up over those 12 months. And I think what that tells us is that the market is getting a little bit tired of the story. Market's getting a little bit tired of funding the losses in the business. And when we see that the momentum has gone out of the stock, and then in addition to that, they have all of those other things I've described, that nasty balance sheet, losing money, issuing stocks, so on. Typically, I think that that's a pretty good tipping point to initiate a short. And we build it so that the the, the fund is 100% net long. It's 130-30, net long 100%. So you can think can about you, Can that. you describe what that is for somebody who doesn't know those terms? Sure. So that means that we borrow an extra 30% long. So we, we take 30 positions long and we, at inception, at each rebalance state, which is quarterly, we put 4.33% as close to that as we can uh, into each long position so that we've borrowed 30%. So we're 130% long. And then we hedge out that 30% additional long with a 30% short in these other names. And we hope and believe that when the market goes down, the, the shorts are going to go down faster than those extra 30% long, and that will create um, a cushion that will mean that we don't go down as much as our benchmark. Okay. And so the way, the way to think about it is to think of it as two different portfolios. In the ordinary course, it's two portfolios. There's one portfolio that's 100% long, and then there's another portfolio that's market neutral, 30-30 market neutral. And in the ordinary course, the 30-30 market neutral makes money by that spread between the overvalued stocks and the undervalued stocks closing. And long portfolio makes money because we think that in the usual course, value stocks slightly outperform the market. That's the value premium that it has existed for a very long period of time. It's been a very rough period for value, and we can talk about that in a moment. But basically, that's what we're trying to create. Hey, you. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Okay. So f- I guess forgive my ignorance. Um, in a kind of allocation like that, if you have one that was allocated like you just said, and then one that was 100% equities with no shorts or borrowing, would they perform the exact same in essence? No, so the the one thirty thirty does add something to just being a hundred percent long, which is why I like it, and which is why I've put it into the fund. So what what typically happens is it won't go down as much. Oh, that's our that's our hope. And in addition to that, it generates a little bit more performance in the usual course because overvalued stocks tend to mean revert back down to valuations, which means overvalued stocks tend to go down. Undervalued stocks tend to mean revert up 
to the average valuation, which means that gap between the two tends to close. So it adds a little bit more performance in, in most markets. And then if the market collapses, the shorts typically, um, they're not selected because they are high beta, but they do tend to become high beta stocks in that kind of market. And, and, and what that means is that they fall faster than other stocks in the portfolio. And so hopefully create a little bit more of a cushion on the way down. Yeah, I, I get I get that part. I mean, you're you're betting against the ones that are showing in the numbers that they're failing and burning cash and not doing right. what businesses should. But I guess I I said the question wrong. So, like in a scenario where it just is a bull market for however long that is, on the upside, is it the same or is it different for that between the two? Well, you still get the you, you're still getting the. Uh, the spread closing in the market neutral portfolio. So it is, it should generate a little bit more return on okay. average. Okay, gotcha. All right, thanks. So uh, how long has the ETF been around and how is it doing so far? You mentioned, obviously, it's been a terrible time for value investors um, for quite a while. It's I've been hearing that narrative for a long time. And it, it's, I mean, for me personally, it's like depending on, which industries want to get hit by the value is dead narrative. Um, some of my positions will be doing great and some of them not as great because for whatever reason, they're not catching up with like say the FANG stocks, for example. So uh, what kind of performance have you seen and, and how do you see if there has been any part of the value investing kind of not working out for a lot of big value investors? How has that contributed if at all? The ETF is brand new. The ETF is only six weeks old. Uh, at the time that we're recording this, it's basically trading uh, at or just slightly below its issue price. Um, value, though, for the last value has been a difficult trade for the last ten years. And there's a number of different ways that we can define it. But if we just use the FAMA French data, uh, that's the academic data set that's available free online. Anybody can go and test this, and they track a number of different. Ratios, so they track price to free cash flow, price to book, price to earnings, and they do it in several different universes. So they look at one that's weighted by market capitalization, which is the way that the S and P five hundred is weighted, and many indexes are weighted that way. So that's uh, many people are familiar with that method of constructing a portfolio, and they also track it in an equal weight universe, which is um, probably the way most. Active investors construct their portfolios or they might even lean into their best positions a little bit more. It doesn't really matter how you look at the data or how you cut the data. You, you come to the same inescapable conclusion. It doesn't really matter which ratio you use either, book, cash flow, or, or earnings. Basically, they have all um, massively outperformed over the full data set. So the full data sets go back to 1951 for cash flow and earnings and to 1920. I think 28 for book value. In each case, the most, the, so they, they're cut into deciles. So a decile is 10% of the market. The cheapest 10% typically outperforms the, the most expensive 10% by quite a margin on average each year. But there are periods in the market where that's not true. So in the dot-com run-up, uh, growth stocks, which is the most overvalued portfolio, 
that did outperform value stocks for for two or three years by quite a wide margin before that all reversed in the early 2000s. And that was at about the time that there were magazine covers saying Warren Buffett's lost his touch and so right. on. <laughs> and you can go back through the data and you can see every bull market, every sort of famous bull market or infamous bull market has had this period where growth stocks have outperformed value stocks. And that's no different to this one that we're currently in. It's just that this one is longer and deeper than we've seen before, which is surprising to many people because they think that the dot-com boom was the was the the worst time for value, but it looks like this time might be even worse. So price to free cash flow, price to cash flow, which is a metric that many value investors like to use, has had its worst performance in the data ever. It's underperformed by the longest period of time. It's about five years now. And it's about 67% behind. So the value portfolio is about 67% behind the growth portfolio, which is unusual because the outperformance has been about 9% on average per year to value. So we're coming to, we're, we're in the midst of this unusually long, drawn out, deep period of underperformance for value and outperformance for growth. When it reverses, uh, or if it ever reverses, nobody really knows, but because I'm a guy who believes in mean reversion, as we've discussed, I think it's likely that it reverses at some stage. And the thing to watch out for is that the reversal is very rapid. So in the early 2000s, so we had a, a value underperformed in the late 1990s and it underperformed for two or three years, but it took seven months for that gap to be closed. And then value went on to outperform for about 10 years after that. And I suspect the same thing happens this time. Once it reverses, the gap will close very quickly. It could be less than a year before it catches up. And then I think it'll be a long period of outperformance. Could be another five or 10 years beyond that. So does that knowledge, and if not that knowledge, maybe other knowledge and other studies you've done, which is what I like about your writing, by the way, is you back up a lot of what you say with all this data and all these different studies, all these different back tests. So does that, that fact that the mean reversion can happen very quickly does is that play a factor in the the way that you've structured the ETF to rebalance? I think you said quarterly, um, or right, are there other quarterly. factors? You know, well, are there what, other factors, and how how can invest like the average investor take advantage of the fact that a mean reversion can happen so quickly, or how can even the average investor do like make a mistake that would lead them to n- not participate in that. Uh, there's there's nothing about the the rebalancing or the nature of the fund that is designed to capture that rapid rebalancing. Like we can go into why it rebalances quarterly in, in a moment, but the the um, the only thing that sort of influence the only influence on the fund that knowing that it's underperforms for so long and the gap will close so quickly is just that I wanted to launch it now because I, I, I don't know when it's going to happen. But when, when you start seeing those extremes, I think that they they indicate some instability and it's that we're probably getting closer to the end of the period of underperformance and that, that performance, better performance for value is coming and possibly it's coming soon. And I would just hate to have missed out on it because if you miss out on it, there's a lot of the performance gone. So uh, the reason that the fund rebalances on a quarterly basis is there's a lot of timing luck in investing. So if you start your portfolio at a date 
that includes the March 2009 low, which means you rebalance close to that March 2009 low, then you're, you, you outperform by quite a lot. And if you rebalance your portfolio at the start of the year, you capture this thing known as the January effect because people sell their losers at the end of the year for tax loss reasons. They can capture the tax loss at the end of the year. Then they rebuy at the start of the year. And so you see value stocks tend to have a tend to dip into the end of the year or undervalued stocks dip, in, dip into the end of the year, then bounce at the start of the year. So ideally, you want to be buying at the end of the year to capture them when they dip and and holding them through that bounce in January. So I, I don't know when the next bottom will be. It could be uh, any time in the year, but you want to be rebalancing as close as possible to the bottom of the market to make sure that your portfolio is filled with the most undervalued stocks. So if, if you're an investor and you're running your own portfolio, those are just some things to bear in mind. You want to be doing your rebalancing at the end of the year to capture the January effect. And then you want to make sure you rebalance regularly through the year or at least check in with your portfolio to see if there's anything that you can you know, that no longer meets your value criteria that you can sell and replace with other things that are better ideas. So that if you, uh, so that if that big event does happen, you're, you're rebalancing at least close to the bottom. You're unlikely to get it exactly on, but you're, you'll be close enough that you'll capture enough of the effect. That makes a lot of sense. So something that I want to ask since I have you here, um, and I feel like you would know the answer to this a lot better than I would. Do do you know if there are any back tests that look at periods like holding periods longer than one year? Because I've noticed when I read about different studies where they talk about, let's say, this value factor, that value factor outperforms um, for however many years. It seems that they're always rebalancing in those studies. And I don't know if that's because it would be really hard to run the back test by not doing that. Um, so are you aware of that? And does that play a factor in why you guys rebalance? Yeah, there, there are quite a few studies that show that. And we looked at, we did some of that testing in quantitative value, the book that came out in 2012. So um, the, 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 the answer is that, and this is a well-known uh, phenomenon in value and you could contrast this with momentum, and I'll, I'll talk to, talk about a momentum in a moment. But in value, uh, a stock that's undervalued at the time that the portfolio is formed tends to outperform for about five years. But the bulk of the outperformance happens in the first year, and then a smaller amount in the second year, a smaller amount again in the third year, and so on out to the fifth year. So it's like the rubber band is stretched the most at the start of the fifth year, at the start of the first year. And it's sort of that gap closes most rapidly and then slows into the into the, the next few years. So you, if you're rebalancing after about a year, you're capturing the bulk of that performance. In a momentum, it's a totally different scenario. So momentum, there, there are lots of different ways of looking at it. But, you know, there's basically they say that uh, this is not something that I, I practice, but it's just an interesting idea that I've, I've seen. Basically, momentum works. The, the signal plus the period that it works all happens inside a year. So... If you use a three-month signal, it works for about nine months. If you use a nine-month signal, it works for about three months. There's a lot of decay in the signal. So I, I, I don't use momentum. I, I, I um, other than in my short book, I just make sure there's no momentum in there. But I don't use it as a as a strategy to outperform. 
but I'm just aware of the way that it works because it's. I think it's important to understand how your strategy works and when your strategy is likely to underperform, when your strategy is likely to outperform. So value tends to underperform at the tail end of a bull market. And my, my, my guess why it does that is because value investors don't tend to chase. Value investors are pretty disciplined. They won't pay up for things. They'll they'll let things get away from them rather than participate. And what that means is that undervalued stocks sort of lose their bid a little bit, and then they tend to sell off first too. So value investors seem to get the message a little bit before the market, and that's often a feature of a of a big crash that value stocks are down well before the market gets the message. But on the other hand, value stocks tend to recover first too. So they will be up quite materially before the market recovers. And uh, the best time for a value investor is right out of the bottom of a crash because that's where all of the bulk of the return happens. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, sorry, just to go back to it, the the study, like the, the study you're referring to, they would hold it for many years and not just one. And then they found that it was within the five years and then after that, it was just kind of, there was no correlations or, or there was just. Basically, it takes about, it, it still outperforms the market. It still generates alpha. An undervalued stock should, you know, or an undervalued portfolio still outperforms the market for five years after the formation of the portfolio. But the bulk of the outperformance is in the first year. Right. Okay. Does the. How how can investors add that ETF to their portfolio? Does the ETF pay a dividend? And uh, anything else about the ETF that we really didn't cover? Uh, the the way that I think about the ETF is it's very concentrated exposure to value. So you can go and find other ETFs that will hold a lot more stocks. And the reason that they do that is you can put a lot more money in them. So I have specifically designed this thing because I want it to have the best chance of outperforming. So it's very concentrated. And what that means for an investor is you don't have to put a very large part of your portfolio into it to capture that value performance. You can put a, a small portion of your portfolio into it and you can put the rest of it into Vanguard Total Market or some other low-cost ETF and you can you can recreate what many value ETFs are trying to do, but you do that for yourself. So all I'm trying to do is give the very concentrated uh, portion of the value so you capture that part you just have to remind me the second part of the question. Uh, what's the ticker? Oh, the ticker is ZIG. Z-I-G as in ZIG when the market zags. It's called the Acquirers Fund. Nice. Uh, and does it pay a dividend? Oh, yes, it does. So the, the dividends will be paid out. Um, the exact detail of that, I, I can't recall off the top of my head, but it's at least once a year, and I think it's towards the end of the year. Good answer because I'm big on dividends, as everybody who's listening knows. Um, so what else, you know, you, you've, you're, you've got so much that you published to contribute to the space. So, uh, again, the ticker is ZIG and whether, where else are you online and you have a podcast as well? Right. So the, uh, the best way to learn is about me is that they'll have a, a website called acquirersmultiple.com. And we have our blog and our podcast, and it has a free screener that you can use that just shows you the 30 stocks uh, that best meet, that we think are the most undervalued, that best meet our criteria for undervaluation. Um, on the podcast, we interview value investors and we talk to them about their strategy, the mechanics of their strategy, how they construct portfolios, how they identify stocks. 
and so on. And I've written a series of books. The Acquirer's Multiple came out in 2017. That's just a very short, easy to read explanation of what we do. But if you want the more academic, uh, more difficult to read books, then Quantitative Value came out in 2012. And I partnered with a PhD at Booth, Wes Gray. We went through and we looked at every single uh, academic and uh, industry research that we could find on fundamental investments. So we looked at how you identify companies that are frauds, how you identify earnings manipulation, how you identify distress, how you find good companies, so good businesses earning high margins, generating high returns and invested capital, and how you find undervaluation. We constructed a model out of that, and that's detailed in that book. I found this unusual phenomenon in there that there's this funny behavior of very undervalued stocks. It's sometimes the worse the fundamentals, the better the stock price performance. And I wanted to explain, I wanted to understand why for myself. And then I wanted to explain why. And so that was a, that process was described in a book called Deep Value. And the short answer is, uh, activists and mean reversion and mm. private equity firms. And then because I think that stock selection is about half the battle and portfolio construction is about the, the second half of the battle. Uh, I wrote a book in 2016 called Concentrated Investing that describes how to form a portfolio, how many, how diversified, how concentrated, how often to rebalance, how other value investors have done it, um, how academics have approached the problem, how quantitative investors have approached the problem. And I think that that's just an interesting way of, um, you know, does Kelly, does the Kelly criterion work for value investors? Does equal weighting work? What does, uh, market capitalization wedding do and so on and i uh, that's one of my favorite books but it's the book that is reviewed the worst on amazon is it because you're you're going against a lot of, you're going against the grain on a lot the way a lot of people kind of hold their portfolios i think it's uh I, you know we we interviewed guys who had 25 year the, the criteria for being for appearing in the book was that you had to have a 25-year track record of concentrated value investment outperformance. And so that's a very small crowd of people, right? That's Buffett, that's Munger, that's Lou Simpson. Uh, and then there's a Christian CM, who's, he's the Nordic Buffett. He's an oil and gas guy. Uh, uh, just his name escapes me at the moment, but Brave Warrior used to be Chieftain. There's a few other guys in there who... Uh, and it's just I, I don't I don't know I don't really know why it didn't strike a chord, but it it, it hasn't been particularly popular. <laughs> <laughs> People don't like to hear about success, maybe. Yeah, I think I, I, I'm not sure. Maybe it's just maybe it's just poorly written. <laughs> I, I I doubt. Uh, so well, thanks for joining us, Tobias. Um, it was a good conversation. I'm always happy to talk to other fellow value investors, sort of fighting the fight, if you will. Uh, wish you the best of luck with the ETF and hopefully people will learn more about you and, and really dive into some of the numbers and figure out why a lot of the things that we like to teach tends to work. So thank you. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Andrew. I really enjoyed it. Great questions. Great. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. 
The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and/or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps—you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.